time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Today's sermon is pre-recorded. The word today is Jacob's heart. Jacob's heart. Lord, the apostle said that all scripture is God-breathed. Lord, I'm asking for your breath to be here today as we share your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. I want to give you a little biblical chronology today. I want to start out with giving you some information. I think you'll find it's very important that everything has a beginning. And it progresses through a process and a middle and an end. See, as we come today, it's very important to understand where you are, when you are, and who you are, or who you are supposed to be. If you're lost on any of those points, you got it. You're lost. Where you are. Interesting question. If I were to say that to some of you, some of you might say, oh, I'm in Woodbridge. Some of you might answer that question. I'm in church. Now, if I were to ask you, where are you in the solar system? Third planet from the sun. That's where I am. Okay. Well, what if I then asked you, where are you in the universe? And then things get a little bit more difficult. I'm going to read to you out of actually a, a college astronomy textbook now. Quote, our solar system resides in the darkest part of the Milky Way galaxy's life-habitable zone. The Milky Way resides in the darkest life-habitable region of its galaxy cluster, which occupies the darkest life-habitable region of its supercluster of galaxies. Now, do you know where you are? You're in the darkest place of all creation, the darkest place there is. It's no wonder that the first grace of God, let there be light, if you'd like to follow. It's Genesis, the sixth chapter. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. It wasn't the sons of men saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. There's a difference being shown here. In the Hebrew, there is. So the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he's mortal. His days will be 120 years. Boom, judgment is passed upon mankind. Now, interesting, it goes on to say now, next verse, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. There's many ancient stories of this, what they call antediluvian period. Anti just simply meaning before, pre-deluge. Many would say to you that all of the the mythical beasts and creatures, Zeus, Achilles, all of the gods, the bearded man, the king of the gods, that all of these were what were called the men of renown of the antediluvian period. Follow me. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time, the darkest place in creation. Only evil all the time, planet Earth. That's where you are. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, 
and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth. That's it. I'm going to annihilate them. Except one. His family. It's a different sermon, though. We're not going to talk about Noah today. But he said, I'm going to save one. And I'll tell you the reason why. He said, because and in this generation, based upon what he knew, he was righteous in the sight of God. It says, men, animals, creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air. I'm grieved that I made all of them. Can you imagine the grief of God to literally kill all of his children? There is a definition to a word here that I want you to understand because, once again, it gives you an understanding of beginning, the progression, and where we are. This word that the is translated Nephilim. In the Hebrew, it literally means the fallen ones. So it says, the fallen ones were on the earth that day. Referring, as we talked about in the beginning, that these were the sons of God. In Luke, the 10th chapter, Jesus said, Surely I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, Jesus is speaking literally as the one that was before time and said, children, I saw Satan fall, the fallen ones. And where did he fall? Like lightning to the earth. Revelations, it says he took a third of the stars with him. A third of all of God's children. I want to read the scripture to you. Genesis tells you this, Luke tells you this, Jesus tells you this, but Isaiah tells you this also. Listen to what Isaiah said. This is Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. The NIV translation uses the term morning star. The Hebrew word is Lucifer. Oh, how you've fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. My first son, son of the dawn. We now have a rebellion in heaven. We now have a rebellion in earth. We have sin spreading like a cancer across all of God's creation. He says enough. And he sends the flood. Hence, the darkest place in all of creation, right where you're sitting right now. I mean, it looks very light outside today. Thank goodness Jesus said, let there be light. Thank goodness he said, I am the light of all men and I have come. If not, we would be in such utter darkness, being ruled by the fallen stars. And many are today. So you have this antediluvian time before the, the flood, before the deluge, and now you have this post-Diluvian world. And that's where we're going to begin to talk about what it must have been like there. You have to understand, for 40 days and for 40 nights, it began to rain, but it wasn't just the rain. It says that the springs of the earth broke loose. There is more water under the ground than there is in the oceans. And it says that these springs that are in the earth that go down almost to the core of the earth burst forth. And everything was destroyed. And it says that the waters receded. Noah's there with his three sons and their wives, eight in all, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So now you have the three parents, if you will, of all of us. The scriptures say, though, that it was only from one bloodline. It was from Shem that the people of God came. One of the sons of Shem was Eber. Eber is where we get the word Hebrew. So the Hebrews, the Israelites, come from the line of Shem. So as it usually is in a family, you see a separation between children, brothers, sisters. 
those who follow Jesus and those who don't. And it was even with this first, again, first family. I want to begin again to give you some chronology here. It's important to understand this, this environment that he grew up in. Jacob was born about all of the birth periods and this son and begot this son and begot this son. If you add them all, it was 456 years after the flood. So you're looking at this beginning period of the rebirth of the earth that you have this young man, Jacob. Now, his grandfather, Abraham, was born about 300 years after the resetting of the earth, this new world. And it was Abraham that, of course, was called and given the promises. And as it, as it is in the scriptures, and anecdotally, I've seen it in families, a promise goes from a father to a son, to a grandson. And so the promises that came to Abraham then went to his son Isaac. Abraham was about 160 years old, old and full of years. He only had 15 years left in his life at this point. And his two grandsons were born, Jacob and Esau. And I want to talk about these two today. An interesting note. At this time, there was still a man living on the earth And he was one of the patriarchal fathers, probably the only one left that actually stepped off of the ark, and it was Shem. Shem probably outlived Abraham by about 35 years. He died at the age of 600, the scriptures say. Shem was probably the one that the scriptures talk about as Melchizedek, the priest the king and priest. It says that he was the king of Salem or the king of peace. And of course, this king of Salem is just a shortened version of Jerusalem. So this was the king of Jerusalem. This is where God's people were sent. And I tell you, there was only one man on the earth at this time that could have been Melchizedek. And it was the one named Shem. Go with me to Genesis, the 25th chapter, if you have your Bible. This is how it began with Jacob. It says, Isaac, Jacob's father, and this is verse 21, Genesis, the 25th chapter. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered his prayer. And his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. Isn't it interesting? Almost every man in the scripture that is given the promises, he ends up with a barren wife. And he has to pray. And he has to stand by faith. Because God has to open her womb. Just an aside. It says, the babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? And she was pregnant. She might have been complaining a little bit. So she went to inquire of the Lord. Now, this is what I love about this. The Lord said to her, what? Why wasn't God talking to Isaac? What's going on with dad? He's talking to mama. He says to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And it says, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. Now remember, Rebecca never forgot this. When these boys were born, she never forgot that the older would serve the younger. It says, the first one came out, he was red. His whole body was like a hairy garment, it says. They named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. It says Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. I've heard many preachers. I've read some commentaries. And when you hear this story, probably like I, you've heard this too. 
the word, the name Jacob, it means supplanter or heel grabber. Jacob was a heel grabber. This is who Jacob was. I would like to offer to you another explanation about our friend Jacob today. I just think he didn't want to let his brother go. Can you imagine coming out of your mother's womb and your brother who you've been hugging? Jesus saw that. Since the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man. It says Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. The problem I have here with Isaac is dad knew the promise of God. And he went contrary to the word of God and said, no, my firstborn son will have my blessing. And mama said, oh, no, he won't. And so you better believe Rebecca conditioned her son, her baby boy, as he spent time with her at home in the tents. While Esau Esau was out hunting game, he said to her son, son, you'll have the blessing. See, something happened here as the boys grew up. Jacob never wanted to let go of his brother. But they began to become separated. They began to become separated by the word of God. They began to be separated by their parents. They began to be separated, most likely, by Esau's attitude and his behavior. And so it comes one day, verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. He says, look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is that birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore on an oath, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and got up and left. And it says, so Esau despised his birthright. Now, I know some of you know this, but this is very important not to go by quickly. In this culture, the birthright meant that you got a double portion of dad's inheritance. You got the lands, you got the cattle, you got the money, you got the gold, you got the power, you got the authority, you got the real estate. I mean, this is a big deal. What it really meant, though, and what it was symbolic of, even as it is in the New Testament, is that you were the one receiving the blessing of God. And so it wasn't that he rejected the real estate. It wasn't that he rejected the gold. He was rejecting who Jesus was. One of the most commonly misquoted scriptures I hear, Jacob I love, Esau I hate it. How many of you have heard it? Just totally pulled out of context. You've heard it. You've heard that said as a phrase over and over and over again. Who said that? I'll show you. Find this in Malachi. I think it's the first chapter. It is. So Malachi, and just briefly, the way it starts was not Esau. Jacob's brother, the Lord says. So this is, this is Jesus speaking. And the first thing he recognizes is that they were brothers. It was the first importance to God. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. People hate 
I don't like using that word. People don't like that scripture. God is love. How could God have hated one of his children? Let me give you a definition of the Hebrew. The word hated literally means to be an enemy or foe. See what Jesus was saying is he recognized the importance first, foremost, that Esau was Jacob's brother. And what he hated was the separation that happened, that Jacob never wanted with his brother. And Jacob did recognize that. From the beginning, as he said, don't go away from me. See, everybody wants to state this passage, and I, some of you might know the theological background of this, but this is the, this is the battering ram of hyper-Calvinism that says everything is predetermined. This is the, the main scripture that is always used about predestination, saying all salvation is predetermined. You're saved, you're not saved. You're saved, you're not saved. You're saved, and on and on and on. Meaning no actions we take can change that. That's a hyper-Calvinistic view of predestination. You either are or you ain't. And I'm sorry, there's nothing you can do about that. You just weren't chosen. So what it's saying is that Your salvation is not by any action you take. If you dare listen to the radio, other than our dear pastor, you'll hear this everywhere. You can't do anything except the gift of God. If you don't do anything, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Because remember, you're in the darkest place in all of God's creation. And a third of the fallen ones have been sent here. We don't know how many hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions that is here, maybe man to man, maybe billions, who knows, to take out mankind still to this day. I want you to understand, it's not saying God hated Esau. It said that Esau became a foe or an enemy of Jesus. He remained with that wall of enmity between his heart and God's heart. Basically, what it says is that Jacob I loved, but Esau wanted to be my foe. Does that make sense? Esau decided to be my enemy. Well, listen to what it says. Enemies of God, if there are any out there hearing this today. And so I've turned his mountains into a wasteland. And I left his inheritance. Remember? His inheritance wasn't important. I left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Have you met any Edomites lately? You're not going to find any of them. They don't exist anymore. It's always amazing to me when a man has one son and three or four daughters. I go, gosh, I have two girls and one son. I said, man, I got one chance to carry that name. (laughs) One shot at this. God will just come if you despise his inheritance and say, look, I'm going to remove you from the earth. You have no chance. Have no chance. So, Esau, and what it is saying here, turned away from the Lord. He had no heart to have an inheritance from Jesus. He had no heart to go through the suffering that his brother Jacob was about to go through. And man, it was tough. Genesis, the 28th chapter. I want you to see again that this is this beginning phase of the new world. There's not that many people on the earth, guys. 
we're talking about maybe several hundred thousand people at this time. Can you imagine? What are we now? Seven, eight billion people? There was maybe a couple, maybe one, maybe 150,000 people, if that, in the entire, on the entire planet. Men were scarce in this day. Esau becomes very angry. He goes, Jacob goes to Isaac and receives the blessing. And literally, it wasn't Isaac's blessing. I mean, when Esau came and said, Father, don't you still have a blessing for me? Hey, couldn't dad say, yeah, absolutely. Forget my son. I can't believe he did that. You get the blessing. He says, I have no blessing left. It was like, boom, the bullet left the gun. It was God that was giving the blessing. And Isaac finally knew, I cannot choose my son anymore over the one God chose. Isaac didn't have the power anymore to give his blessing to his, the one whom he chose. The blessing went to the one who said, I don't ever want to let my brother go. Anecdotally, I, I've, I've seen this. I've seen brothers fighting with each other. I've seen older brothers being horrendously wicked, beating up their little brothers, humiliating them. I mean, just some of the meanest stuff. I hate to say it, and I hate to see it, but you see some of the meanest stuff come out of kids. And the interesting thing is, is I've watched them grow up then 30, 20, 30, 40 years. And when you look at their lives, you see where the blessing of God was on that elder brother, and it left him. I could tell you stories where there's 40 years of financial catastrophe after failed business, after divorce, after loss, after on that older brother. And I'm telling you, it's because how he treated his little brother and the blessing of God left him. That's what happened here. I've seen it. I've seen it more than once. God has seen your behavior as a child and as an adolescent. And it doesn't matter how you've sinned. The Holy Spirit comes and calls and calls and calls again and again and again. And Esau could have responded. But all of this is about, remember, it's Jacob's heart. Jacob did respond. He said, I desire to have the blessing of God. And so what happens next, you see here in Genesis, the 28th chapter, verse 10, says, Jacob left Beersheba, the land of Canaan, and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. That's a real comfortable place to sleep. On the dirt with your head on a rock. That's where it always begins if you decide to follow Jesus. I'm sorry. That's a little truth at advertising. How humble your beginnings will be, but so prosperous your future. I think the scripture says something like that. He had a dream. You ever had a dream from God? Remember where you are, in the darkest corner of creation. You lay down and go to sleep one night. And you begin to see a, a, a vision from heaven. Hold it very dear if this has happened to you. It says Jacob had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth. Remember, where the rebellion has taken place, there's now a stairway. It looks like there might be a way out. In this dream, resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood Jesus. He saw Jesus. This is what he said. I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. 
All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. All peoples of the earth. That's a that's an amazing promise. That's the promise of Messiah. It's through your offspring that I will now bring redemption. Wow, if he only really would have understood that. He probably said, oh, wow, that's great. I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. Now, here it is. I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. Have you ever had this word come to you from Jesus? I'll tell you my first response. Okay, Lord, I believe you. Are you going to leave me then? I don't ever want you to leave me. Even after I receive your promise. I don't think I have to be afraid about that. But that was my first response. See, Jacob was a mess. He was running for his life. His brother wanted to kill him. Literally, there was a plot to murder him happening. He probably had very little money. I'm sure dad gave him a sack of gold and said, get out of here. Take the donkey and leave. He had nothing. And then the latch of God, like the big hand of God, just grabs him by the shoulder and says, I'm not going to let you go now. I'm placing my promise on you. Like he had placed his promise on his grandfather Abraham, like he had placed his promise on his daddy Isaac. None of them were allowed to go. They were disciplined. They were sent to famines. They were commanded to go live in the desert. Everywhere they went, the latch of God's promise was on their life. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. This was all about Jacob genuinely desiring to be blessed by the Lord. You will not make progress in your Christian experience if you do not and have not because it doesn't come within, so let me, for people argue with me, if you do not cultivate the call of the Holy Spirit on your heart that's saying, follow me. The grace of God, don't buy it, isn't irresistible. Again, another hyper-Calvinistic view. Unresistible grace. Oh, yeah? I've spent a lot of time resisting it. Took me a lot to come through. I was like, wow, that wasn't unresistible. Actually, this period of my time has been pretty miserable at times. And then you'll hear the Holy Spirit say, Stop resisting me. Yes, sir. See, this was all about what was about to happen now. The boy who didn't want to let go of his brother, that never wanted to be separated, that never wanted to have his family torn apart. It says, Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. What in the world just happened? You have to understand, the word of the Lord had not come to Jacob yet. This was it. This was the first time. I'm going to give you another factoid that you may not know. Do you know how old Jacob was? 77 years old. So this is coming from a 77-year-old. Jacob made a vow saying, wow, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me my food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, 77-year-old man. (laughs) Then the Lord will be my God, but you must give me everything I want. And please don't be late. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And it was named Bethel, house of the Lord, house of bread. And all that you give me, I'll start tithing. I'll give you a tenth. Nothing nothing more. I want you to understand, again, all of the preachers that just 
blow Jacob up right here. The heel grabber's at it again. I'm telling you, this vow that was uttered was so precious to Jesus. He says, the Lord would say at this point, that's all I've been waiting to hear. Is that out of your childish immaturity, you would make a commitment to serve me. Says Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand. Remember, in the midst of the darkness, sequestered at the farthest reach of the universe, where no longer will sin begin to spread like a cancer across God's creation, in this darkest place, he says he looks at all men and says, is there even one who will seek God? Psalm 14. I praise God that he said, okay, son, I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. we got a long walk ahead of us. Let's go. Some of you, and don't be discouraged, have a long walk ahead of you today with Jesus. I've had a long walk with Jesus. He won't let go. And finally, if that latching of God's promise upon our lives... If that didn't happen, we would all blow away in our unbelief, in our misunderstanding of God's ways. Why am I not receiving what I need right now? Why? Why is this happening? So the promise comes, it takes hold of our lives, and it says, I will not leave you. You need to hear that from Jesus today. I will not leave you. He has much more important things to do with your life than you can even imagine. Don't be an Esau. Don't throw the inheritance away. Interesting thing begins to happen now. He gets up from making this precious vow to God in his immaturity. Now, give him this. He did live till he was 147 years old. So 77, it's more like 35, right? Something like that. I guess back then it just took a little longer to grow up. He gave some of them 900 years to do it. Can you imagine? Interesting thing happens. He goes on to Uncle Laban's house. His uncle accepts him. And he gets sentenced to seven years of hard labor for a wife. And it says that he was so in love with Rachel, the wife that he chose. Seven years, hard labor goes by, sleepless nights, freezing cold, sheep in the wilderness, burning hot days. says his wages were changed ten times, robbed and stolen from. If anything was lost in the field, it came out of his pay. Wasn't a fun seven years. Have you ever had a seven-year period like that? Wedding day comes. Jacob gets a little drunk, I think. Might have had a little too much wine. He wakes up in the morning with the older sister, the not-so-pretty one. And he says, my God, what has happened? And Laban says, well, it's not our custom to give away the younger sister first. You've got to take the older one, and I want seven more years. Hard labor. Okay, guys, you have to ask yourself, was it Laban or was it God? There's a thread in Scripture I'll share with you briefly, that if you want the blessing of God, you might have to go through seven years of discipline. If you want the double blessing of God, you might have to go through 14. Paul did. King David did, Joseph did, Jacob did. Go all through the stories, theologians, go study the Bible. Says Paul, he had the ministry to the Jews and the Gentiles, the double blessing. And it says, and he was put away for 14 years, and then he went on up to Jerusalem. A long time in the desert with the double blessing of God. 
better start young. I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, did Laban do this to Jacob? You know, the wife that he chose was barren for most of their lives. And it's interesting when you look at the genealogy of Leah, Judah was a son of Leah from who Jesus came, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So Jacob says, God will give you a tenth. Just feed me, give me what I need, and off I go, and I'm going to pick the woman I want now. He says, no, you're not, son. I'm going to bring forth my Messiah through your life. Excuse me while I do that. Things got a little tough for him. Out of Leah comes Judah. Under the law, under Moses. Please understand, much of what we see begin to be laid out in the law was just the heart of God that had always been carried on from the beginning. Shem knew that. Shem was without the law, but he was priest of God Most High. Moses was a long way off grandchild of his. But when you go now, there's a a premise, a thread in Scripture, a way of God called the Shemitah. Let me read the scripture to you. It's in Deuteronomy, the 15th chapter. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it's to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. This word canceling debts in another translation, it'll say it's the time of release or it's the Shemitah. The Hebrew word Shemitah means release. So God had built in and was building in now to this nation of Israel that every seven years, all debts had to be forgiven. There was not to be any poor in the land. Please understand also, this was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Saying, look, the day's going to come. I'm going to send the seven. You're going to be set free. Let's talk about that seven for a moment. In Leviticus, it says, if you will not obey me, I will punish you seven times for your sin. Judges 6.1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them in the hand of Midian's. O Nebuchadnezzar, great king, seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms, and he gives it to whom he pleases. And it says that at that moment, Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from the people and ate grass like the cattle. It says he had feathers like birds and nails like eagles. He went through it for seven years. The great king. I think they just pastured him and they were afraid to get near him. Not to mention if he became sane for a moment, he could have you killed. This was the great king Nebuchadnezzar. But it said God humbled him for seven years. I can go, guys, on and on and on. If you don't get the first seven, maybe you'll get the second seven. But it is a way of God. Now let's talk about the word seven. In the Hebrew, look it up. It says seven, a cardinal number. And the meaning behind the Hebrew is this. The divine fullness of. That's what the Hebrew word for seven means. You might have heard in Biblical numerology, for those of you that ever got into it. Seven is the number of God. It's the number of completeness. Well, they get that from this Hebrew definition that says the divine fullness of. You have to understand, Jesus is the seven. You get it? Jesus was the divine fullness of Yahweh. Father. Some of you might be 
being disciplined for seven years. I laugh sometimes. I'll ask, and I won't, I won't make it public. How long you work there? Six years. You're almost out of there, brother. Endure just a little bit longer. But I'll teach you another way of God. It'll be 6.9 years. Because God backloads everything. It says, in the seventh year, you must release him. If a fellow Hebrew, this is verse 12, chapter 15. If a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year, you must let him go free. You have to understand, this is what was happening. This was a way of God that was already carrying out in Jacob's life. Seven for the first wife, seven for the second. Out of that suffering, I am going to give you the nation of Israel. Do you understand? You might not understand your suffering today, but out of Jacob's suffering and him enduring it, and thinking he lost his son, and having the blessing of God. And just an aside, guys, remember, when he crossed into Canaan land, what was the first thing that happened with the double blessing of God on his life? His only daughter was assaulted. How do you deal with that? Fathers, keep your daughters close. Train up your sons. In the seventh year, you must let him go free. This was the law of God. Do you think he won't keep his own law? Do you think he's a lawbreaker? you think he's going to do it to you? Remember, we started this out saying, look, in everything, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there is an end. Psalm 89. I love this verse of Scripture. Chapter, excuse me, Psalm 89, verse 14. It says in the NIV translation, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. The King James, it'll say, Righteousness and judgment. Uses that word judgment. It's a scary word. The Hebrew word for judgment means literally to render a verdict in a court case. So what it's saying is, look, righteousness and to always bring things to an end and bring forth a verdict. Why? To set the people free. A verdict is always brought in your life. I want you to know whatever suffering you're going through, whatever trial you're going through, it ends. You have the promise right here. All you have to do, as my sister said, she's been doing a lot of groaning. Go start groaning over this promise. And by the way, ask him if if he'll seven you. Last but not least, I'll share this with you. This promise is when a man sells himself to you. When a man says, Jesus, I'll serve you. I'm selling myself to you. I'm selling out to you. I'm not selling out to the devil. I'm not selling out to anyone else. He serves you six years. In the seven years, seventh year, you must let him go free. I have this, this date marked, 228, February 28, 2009. Now, you have to understand, my born-again birthday, which I used to think wasn't that important until I really began to research and to find out what was that day. If you haven't done that, find out. It's important to God. It should be important to you. My born-again birthday was February 28, 2002. So here I am, having no idea, having no understanding of these things I've shared with you today. And the Holy Spirit, just this thing comes off the page like LED lights in my face. I, yellow, underlined in green, date written promise right there. You have to understand what I just spent that seven years doing. I had spent the same thing Jacob was doing. Lord, would you please bring me a wife already? Seven years waiting on a wife. And he gave me the promise. I didn't know, by the way, guys, that that was my born-again birthday. I had gone back to do the research finally. On the day that I had served my seven years, he said, I will release you now. 
10 months later, no, eight months later, October 18th, 2009, I was married. My wife walked into the church several months later, and that was it. I want you to know something. God abides by his word. This isn't somebody else's word. This is the holy writ. This is the God-breathed scripture. He'll do exactly what he says he'll do. Guys, I didn't go online. I didn't go here. I didn't go there. As Isaac did, I had my face in the field praying when my wife walked up, walked right into the church. See, some of you today may have many places to go fast. Got to get there. But remember the dark place where you are. Remember the chronology of what has happened upon the earth and how close we are now to the end. Because remember, God's going to bring a verdict. Don't think for a moment Jesus isn't coming back. He will come as surely again as he did come the first time to bring a verdict for his people and for the church. Trust Jesus right now with the time he has over your life. Some of you are about to be released. The Shemitah is upon you. The time of release is here. Some of you may have some time to go. Do it with your hands lifted up and get out. Because there's only three places to be on the earth. Three, that's it. You're either in Egypt and you've never come into the Holy Land. Or you're in the wilderness, and you can't wait to get out. Or for some, God has done what he promised you, and you're in the promised land. Those are the only three places to be on the earth. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what the world says. That's what God says. Wherever the shoe fits for you today, wear it. And no. He'll even take your most immature vows and say, that is the most precious thing I ever heard. I love you. I want to give you so much. And he'll, he'll not leave you until he's done what he's promised. Lord, I just ask your, your clarity to be in all of us, to know what your word is to us. And Lord, for some, they need to know how much time they have to endure. Would you make it clear? There's so many that I know right now that are waiting on promises that you have given them, and there is a set time for the Shemitah, for the release over their lives or over their wives or over their husbands or children. Lord, speak to your people in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk to you soon. With great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless. For the presence of His glory with